So if you want to want to have your Bibles open in front of you, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 1. I'm just going to uh, read the first 25 verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. God, God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear Fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and fruit trees, trees bearing fruit rather, with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them, let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. To govern the day and the night. And to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the waters teems, and that moves about in it according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. We thank God for his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your holy and mighty presence, and our prayer is that your word might be our rule, but your spirit that he might be our teacher, and your glory. And honour would be our supreme concern. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, please have that passage, Genesis chapter 1, open in front of you. 
Uh, last week we began uh, our series looking at Genesis chapter 1. But before getting to verse 1, which was as far as we got uh, last week, I suggested that the book of Genesis matters a great deal because it is foundational in helping us answer key questions like, why am I here? Where is this world heading? And does a God exist? Uh, Philosopher Bertrand Russell arguably one of the great minds of the 20th century, wrote that unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. That's quite a statement coming from an atheist. It's also interesting because last week we discovered that according to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, this universe, including our world, had a beginning. Our galaxy and solar system, you and I all had a beginning. In addition to this, we also learn that God exists and claims to be the absolute creator of absolutely everything, including you and including me. This is both threatening and exhilarating, because not only does it mean that he has ownership rights over you and me, If he is indeed our creator, he would have to be an infinitely wise, powerful, timeless, self-existent, intelligent being who poured complex information into the creation of this universe. And as if that is not enough to take in, I further suggested that the main focus of Genesis chapter 1 is not so much on the how or the why of creation. Genesis chapter 1 is not even that interested in proving God's existence. No, Genesis chapter 1 is more about the who of creation. It is about meeting our maker. Someone once said this, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We are all worshippers of one kind or another, and whether we entertain high or low thoughts about God will determine how legitimate our worship of God is. So in many ways, the stakes could not be higher as we come to the rest of Genesis chapter 1 here today. And that's pretty much where we got to last week, if you weren't able to be with us. Now, last week, I also asked the question, what is your view of the scripture? What do you make of this book? Well, I want to continue asking that question this week, because I maintained last week that God's word, the Bible, as originally given, does not and cannot contain errors. It is both inerrant and infallible. You see, a high view of who God is naturally flows out from a high view of what the scriptures are. Yet related to this fact is that having a high view of scripture does not need to mean you need to take every word of the Bible as being literally true. If you listen to talk shows, it's frustrating uh, because that seems to be the assumption. 
See, the Bible is made up of several different styles of writing. For example, the largest book in the Bible is a book full of poetry. And many of the prophetic books in the Bible are full of imagery, similes, and metaphors. In short, we have to be very careful not to take what is intended to be figurative in too literal a way or vice versa. Uh, for example, don't look it up, but in Isaiah 40 and verse 22, we read this. He, that is our Lord and creator, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, is the writer telling us that the earth is circular in that verse? Is that the main thing we should take away from this verse? Or is the main emphasis on God being sovereign over his creation? Well, I would suggest to you it's the latter. Yet we might be tempted to put too much weight on Isaiah 40 verse 22 because it fits with what we believe about the earth to be round. And at the same time, we ignore verses like Psalm 19 verse 6 and Ecclesiastes 1 verse 5, which appear to say that the sun rises at one end of uh, the earth, the heavens, and makes its circuit to the other, suggesting that the earth is at the center of everything and not the sun. Since the Bible refers to the pillars and foundations of the earth, for centuries the Roman Catholic Church believed the earth was fixed and at the center of the universe, at the center of everything. And so Galileo, a scientist by the name of Galileo, got into trouble with the church in part because I think he was clear, unlike the leaders of the church of the time, that the purpose of the Bible was, I quote, to teach us how one goes to heaven and not how the heavens go. Uh, John Lennox is a professor of mathematics and a fellow of the philosophy of science at Oxford University. He's also a very committed Christian. He helpfully uh, put it this way. I'm a scientist who believes scripture to be the word of God. I am not shy, therefore, of drawing scientific implications from it. Where warranted. However, saying scripture has scientific implications does not mean that the Bible is a scientific treatise from which we can deduce Newton's laws, Einstein's equations, or the chemical structure of common salt. The Roman Catholic Church did not appreciate this subtle difference, and so formally declared Galileo's views heretical, because they thought he was explicitly contradicting the sense of Holy Scripture. Now, there is perhaps a legitimate concern that Bible studies at Grace Church Broccoli could become overly analytical, and perhaps even that some of our sermons analyze the text of the Bible too closely. But I also want to suggest to you that just as much damage if not more, has been done during the history of the Christian church because Christians have not been willing to analyze Bible texts closely enough. See, often biblical texts are more sophisticated than we appreciate. And we are often more lazy or spiritually indifferent than we should be. Now, rather than using scientific language, the Bible uses the language of appearance. That is, 
language derived from the perspective of an observer standing on the earth. Which is obvious when you think about it, because that's the only perspective that we've got. So saying the sun rises at one end of the heavens while making a circuit to the other does not commit the Bible or a Christian who is a scientist for that matter to any particular model of the solar system. At the same time, the Christian worldview of the Bible does and has provided fertile soil for the flourishing of the study of science. Both Genesis chapter 1 and 2 have a focus on naming things. Uh, Those of you like myself who have a background in biology will know this to be at the heart of that particular branch of science. It's called taxonomy. And during my first year at university, I did a very tedious course called the classification of living things. Bored the living socks off to me. Also, in Genesis uh, chapter 1, human beings were given the job of ruling over God's creation. Chapter 1, verse 26. But how can you rule over something without studying to understand what it is you're supposed to be ruling over? See, the study of science, therefore, is implied in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis 1. Now, another major genre in scripture is narrative or story. Which, in contrast to poetry, can be accepted as an accurate record of historical events. And yet, we must also be aware that narrative is often not a complete record. At least not in the Bible. Often the author has been selective and even non-chronological in what is recorded because he has a specific perspective, a specific truth he wants the readers to grasp. The purpose of which is usually that we love God more deeply and we trust him more intimately. At the same time, within any narrative, there are some characters who agree with God's perspective and others who do not. For example, when we read Genesis chapter 3, we are not to regard what comes out of the serpent's mouth as literally true. Indeed, we must recognize that his words cannot be trusted because he's a liar. And Jesus tells us in the gospel he's been a liar from the very beginning. And so that brings me to the next question, which is this. How do we classify Genesis chapter 1? See, nowhere is the question of the style of writing more important than than in our reading of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Are these chapters to be read as an actual true story? As embellished history? As poetry? Myth? Or as something else altogether? Well, one Old Testament scholar puts the cats among the pigeons when he writes the following. The man who says, I believe that Genesis purports to be a historical account, but I do not believe that account, is a far better interpreter of the Bible than the man who says, I believe that Genesis is profoundly true, but it is poetry. 
Evangelicals who want to hold to evolution and to get over the difficulties by saying Genesis is to be interpreted as poetry or myth and not in a factual manner cannot, in my view, be honest interpreters. See, there are several other parts of the Bible that describe creation in poetic fashion. Job chapters 38 and 39. Psalms 19, which John read for us a few moments ago. Psalms 33, 104, 136, and Isaiah 45. But none of these are quite like the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Our classification of the Bible into different styles of writing is helpful, but it breaks down somewhat when it comes to the opening section of the Bible. Uh, Scholars agree that this section is written in a formal Hebrew narrative or story style. It is meant to be understood as that which happened in time and space. The time and space world that you and I live in and experience. It's meant to be understood in that way. They're all agreed on that. Both the Old and New Testament, the history of the Jews, and our present history are very much rooted in the historical events of Genesis chapter 1. I tried to point that out last week. And yet, although Genesis chapter 1 is uniquely exalted history, written in prose, and therefore not poetry, In the strictest sense, the author has clearly taken a poet's care in writing it, in constructing it. Uh, Bible commentators, for example, have noticed the author has a fondness for the numbers 3, 7, and 10. For example, three times we are told that God created. You see that in verse 1? Look down at verse 1. In verse 21... And also in verse 27. And the third time in verse 27, that unique word created is used three times in one verse. There is also a pattern which involves the events of the first three days, days one, two, and three, mirroring the events of the second set of three days, days four, five, and six. God creates in the first three days, then he fills what he's created in the second three days. We'll come to that later in the series. Then, did you know that the very first sentence of Genesis 1 is made up of exactly seven words in the original? Also, seven times we are told that God saw that what he has created was good. And the word earth, or land, occurs three times, seven times, 21 times. And of course, we have the six days of the creation event itself that culminate in the seventh day of rest. Finally, ten times we are told that God said, And this phrase, if you like, forms the backbone of the entire section, as it were. It is hard to believe, in other words, that all this and more is not in some way deliberate. It's certainly quite intriguing. 
See, 21st century readers like you and me find ourselves distracted and perplexed by various questions. And we miss the fact that every word of this opening section of the book of Genesis has been weighed. Each sentence carefully crafted. Clues have been left that point to meaning or to the main emphasis. (coughs) So we're going to ask for your patience. With all the many questions you may have swirling around in your mind. Because I think the first priority of this portion of God's word is to introduce us to the who of creation. And to our creation. Which brings me to the first thing I believe Genesis 1 is saying to us, which is this, here this afternoon. God is the true hero of this universe not Thor or Superman or anyone from the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe no God is the true hero of this universe the emphasis in this entire chapter is placed on God or Elohim in the 34 verses that make up this section the word God or Elohim appears in virtually every verse and he is active His actions and his actions alone are what stand out. So verse 1, God created the earth and all things apart from the earth. Verse 2, God's spirit hovers over creation like a mother bird hovering over its nest. In other words, he holds all things under his sovereign control, nurturing and caring for it. Verse 3, God said. Verse 4, God saw. Verse 5, God called. In fact, he is the subject of around 70% of the sentences in this opening section of the Bible. It is God or Elohim who is the one separating light from darkness, water from water, land from seas, verses 4 to 10. In the rest of the chapter, he is the one who fills the heavens, the seas and the lands with stars, sea creatures And animals respectively. It is Elohim. Who is the one deliberating within himself. As he sets about the momentous task. Of creating the human race. In verses 26 and 27. That is you and I. This is a deliberate and important emphasis. See Genesis was first written into a world of many different beliefs or faiths. In the spiritual supermarket of the ancient Near East, there were religions involving animal gods, gods of the heavenly bodies, fertility gods, gods of war, gods of land, gods of the seas, and so on and so on. Of course, in our multi-ethnic, multi-faith, and politically correct culture, there is just as much, if not more, confusion today. I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. Or the God I believe in would never dot 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 are common expressions that people use. And so there are many gods on offer in the spiritual supermarkets of the 21st century. Tailor-made gods or customized gods to suit every need or temperament. The question is, is this a right or acceptable way to think? Genesis 1 says no, it is not. In verse 5, God, or Elohim, names the light and the dark. 
In verse 8, he names the sky, and in verse 10, he names the land and the seas. This is the author's way of saying that Elohim has authority and control over all these things. And notice in verse 16 that the sun and moon are deliberately not named as such. Instead, they are referred to as simply the two greater lights. One being greater than the other. See, in a world where people worship the sun and the moon, the writer is keen for us to see that Elohim is the sovereign creator. He put them both there. This is the way Philip Everson, the Hebrew scholar who taught me when I was at seminary some 20 years ago, put it. Pagans think in terms of a sky god, a sea god, and an earth god. Genesis shows that they, sky, sea, and earth, are all creations of the one true God and are subject to him. He alone is the hero you and I should worship. Although Genesis chapter 1 fundamentally answers questions like, who am I and where have I come from? Don't be fooled into thinking it is simply about you and me. First and foremost, it is a majestic introduction, a primer, if you like, on the one who made you and me and absolutely everything besides. People say, don't they, that first impressions matter. Apparently, a first impression is made within the first seven seconds after you meet someone new. When you meet someone for the first time, you're taking a rapid inventory of their gait, how they walk, their smile, their handshake, and how they present themselves. Well, the opening section of Genesis wants to leave you and me with a first impression that says, wow, isn't God, isn't Elohim awesome and amazing? According to researchers, we all need heroes in our lives because, I quote, heroes save or improve lives and because heroes are inspiring. Heroes elevate us emotionally. They heal our psychological ills. They build connections between people. They encourage us to transform ourselves for the better. And they call us to become heroes and to help others. Well, Elohim, the God of the Bible, is the ultimate hero of absolutely everything. And he is willing and able to give us all of those things researchers have described and much, much more besides. Can I ask you, is he your hero? Is he the hero that you worship as you sit here this afternoon? Or is science or something or someone else your God? Let me briefly give you two reasons why he should be. The first is this. Elohim is a personal God. Elohim is a personal God. In the 1970s, a man called George Lucas created the Star Wars Cinematic Universe because he sensed that there was a generation of young people growing up who lacked a sense of spirituality. And he was right, because I was one of those young people. Which is a big part of why the Star Wars movies have always resonated with me personally. See, Lucas gave us the Force. This mystical energy field that binds the whole universe together. 
And certain peacekeepers, not soldiers, peacekeepers called Jedi Knights could tap into this force and do amazing things that involved wielding a special laser sword called lightsabers. There was something good about them, religious, even spiritual. They were the guardians of peace and justice in a turbulent galaxy, as we're told. Well, the Christian God of the Bible is not some impersonal force or energy field that you and I can just tap into. He is a person and therefore relational. Notice in verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, 11, 14, etc., he speaks. In verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, etc., he sees. He makes things, verse 16, i.e., the sun and the moon. He blesses both animals and people in verse 22 and again in verse 28. These are all things that a person does and not some impersonal force. This is why Christians speak of Christianity in terms of a personal relationship with God. Or why we say it is not about rules and regulations but rather about relationship. In the 18th century it became popular to believe in a creator God who was not in the least bit interested or involved in his creation, much less personal in any way. In the 1960s, uh, he was uh, rather vaguely described in a highly controversial but popular book as the ground of our being. No, I've got no idea what that means either. But also the modern theory of evolution says you and I are the products of a blind random process that neither plans consequences nor has any purpose or long-term goal in view. In fact, it is so impersonal, all it cares about is the replication of your genetic material. The opening of Genesis, by contrast, says you and I were created by an infinitely powerful, wise and knowledgeable, self-existent and personal being who was and is actively involved in all the affairs of our lives. And nowhere is God's personhood seen more clearly than in the fact that he speaks. This aspect of Elohim's character is so foundational that, to who he is that again and again in the opening chapter of the Bible, we hear the refrain, And God said... Not only is he there, he is not silent. He speaks, and therefore he can be known. Don't you think he might be worth knowing? I mean, for goodness sake, look at all that he has created. He speaks, and the whole universe, with all its vastness, its beauty and complexity, springs into being. His words are clearly powerful beyond our imagining. And yet, here is the most remarkable thing of all. He can and does want to be known personally by each and every one of us here today. How amazing is that? Indeed, that is the chief end for which you were each created here this afternoon. To know and enjoy this God personally. Why do you think he goes to the trouble of making sure our first impression of him is such a good one? He wants to be the hero of our existence, of your existence and mine. 
The one you look up to, the one you stand in awe of, the one you love and revere with heart, soul, mind and strength. So can I ask you, do you know this God personally, relationally, intimately? Is he your hero? If not, the second reason why he should be is this. Elohim is the one and only true God. This opening section of Genesis makes this point by introducing him as one who is in absolute sovereign control. So seven times in this section we are told that God saw that what he had created was good. This phrase comes in verse 4, verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, and verse 25. And finally in verse 31 where we are told it was very good. The number seven is one of the most significant numbers in the Bible. And this symbolic of perfection and completeness. I don't know if you've ever done any DIY around the house. Now, now be honest. How often can you say it was good? <laughs> Even very, very good. Be honest, I won't judge you. It's, it's no slight on your masculinity, men. And yet, after creating our earth, our solar system, our galaxy, and indeed this entire universe, Elohim is able to survey all that he has made and say, yeah, that's good. And in fact, that's very good. That is exactly as I pictured it in my mind's eye. That is exactly how I wanted it all to be. It is complete and perfect. Do you know what that is? That is power. Absolute and utter sovereign power. And this is further underlined because six times after we read the phrase, and God said, we are also told, and it was so. You see this in verse 7, verse 9, verse 11, verse 15, verse 24, and verse 30. Like him or loathe him, the words of President Trump are powerful, are they not? When he speaks, he causes quite the stir, and stuff happens. But not like this. When Elohim speaks, whole oceans are formed. Verse 9. And almost as an afterthought, we read in verse 16, oh, by the way, he also made the stars. Can you believe that? Now, according to astronomers... There are about 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe. The number of stars in a galaxy varies. We don't know exactly how many, but assuming an average of, say, 100 billion stars per galaxy means that there are about 1 billion trillion stars in the observable universe. I don't know how many noughts that is. (coughs) And yet Elohim spoke Every single one of them into being. Isaiah tells us he knows each of them by name. And according to verse 21, even the biggest, scariest creatures in the sea are small fry to him because he spoke swarms of them into being. Elohim reigns supreme. Genesis simply leaves no room for any other gods. Genesis chapter 1 is strikingly different from other ancient creation accounts. There is no mention of other gods. In the words of one writer, with majestic simplicity, 
Genesis tells us of just one almighty creator who is Lord of everywhere and everything. He is supreme and unrivaled. After hearing all this, we should all be thinking, I need this one and only personal God as the hero of my existence. Sign me up. Well, perhaps you're not a Christian here this afternoon. And if that is the case, then please notice with me, this passage begins with the chaos and darkness of verse 2 and ends with the very good and ordered cosmos of verse 31. And part of what brought this about is that according to verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. With a word, he banished darkness. Hundreds of years after Genesis was was written, the Apostle Paul in the first century wrote to Christians living in modern-day Greece. And he said that even though people have been blinded to the truth of God's existence, he, Paul, would continue to preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Well, don't look it up, but uh, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, because God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, just as God was able to speak light and order into the chaos and darkness at the dawn of creation, he's also able to do the same to the chaos and darkness of your life. I want you to hear that today if you're not a Christian in particular. If you will but acknowledge your need of him in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, where there was alienation, he can bring true friendship and intimacy, personal friendship and intimacy. Where there was disorder, he can bring right order if you would just let him. Some years ago, a church in Cambridge was involved in a major building project. A huge banner was hung on the outside of the building, telling all who passed by that we restore buildings, but God restores lives. Won't you come to him, if you're not a Christian here this afternoon, and let him be the hero that restores your life. Let's have a moment of quiet as we reflect on what we've heard.